Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org, see the club's videos on YouTube, and catch up with the club on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Audrey Cooper, Editor-in-Chief of the San Francisco Chronicle and your moderator for today's program. It is my pleasure to introduce today's distinguished guest, Richard Clark, the former U.S. National Coordinator for Security, Infrastructure Protection, and Counterterrorism, and co-author of the new book, The Fifth Domain, Defending Our Country, Our Companies, and Ourselves in the Age of Cyber Threats. Mr. Clark is an internationally recognized security expert who served in the White House for three U.S. presidents as America's first cyber czar and its first counterterrorism czar. He is currently an on-air consultant for ABC News and teaches at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Prior to his White House years, Mr. Clark served for 19 years in the Pentagon, the intelligence community, and the State Department. In his new book, Mr. Clark says the threat of cyber attacks is manageable, and he provides concrete steps that can be taken towards cyber resilience, including building more resistant systems, raising the cost for cybercrime, and avoiding the trap of overreacting to digital attacks. To discuss all of this, please welcome Richard Clark. Thank you. Thank you very much. So let's first explain the title of the book, The Fifth Domain. What does that mean? Well, the Pentagon uh, thinks about places where it has to fight, Uh, and not just countries, but what it calls domains. And so traditionally, they fought on land and sea. Those are two domains, places where they had to fight. Uh, And then in the mid-20th century, they added air, And toward the end of the 20th century, they added outer space. So the four domains of combat for the Pentagon were land, uh, sea, air, and space. And then in the 21st century, they added the fifth domain, cyberspace, as a place where they would potentially have to fight um, to, to defend, but also to go on the offense. Now, the difference between the, the four domains and the fifth domain it's the four domains existed. Uh, the fifth domain, humans created. Uh, and it is in that domain uh, that cyber attacks are occurring every day. So for most of your public service career, you were dealing with, uh, I would say, a more traditional kind of terrorism up even past the 9-11 attacks. You were credited by some by issuing some prescient warnings to the Bush administration months before 9-11. And when I actually received the email asking me to come tonight, I was in the 9-11 museum reading a quote of yours in the, on the wall. And I thought, well, maybe we should talk to this guy about what the next threat is. And so I'm curious, how did you make that tradition, that, that transition from traditional, what we might think of as traditional terrorism to cyber terrorism? Part of my job uh, in the White House for several presidents was look around the corner, uh, try to anticipate the next threat so that we can be ahead of that threat. Uh, And so with Bill Clinton, uh, who was always doing that himself, um, 
we worried about biological terrorism, um, weapons, biological weapons being used in American cities. Uh, and so we started a program. There was no threat that we knew of, but we thought it might happen. Uh, so we started a program in 157 cities around the country uh, to get the fire and police and hospitals ready, trained and equipped uh, for the potential of biological warfare. That's the kind of thinking that the Clinton administration did. And the president himself started that. Uh, and then we thought, hey, you know, everything is moving to the Internet. Uh, all of commerce is moving to the Internet. Controls of networks is moving to the Internet. People could maybe do some bad things in, on the Internet. And this was the 19, early 1990s. Uh, well, they really hadn't done that, that much. Uh, and uh, Bill Clinton said to me, why don't you look into this, why don't you get a group of people together to study it? We did. We had a commission. commission came back and said, boy, you better get on this because malicious activity is already beginning on the Internet. Uh, and so we wrote a national strategy uh, in 1998 uh, and started moving money into uh, cyber defense programs in 1998. But as part of that, uh, I went out to... Fort Meade in Maryland, uh, which is where the National Security Agency is. Uh, and they peeled back the curtain. They showed me what they could do. Uh, and I was amazed uh, at what they could do uh, on the Internet and through cyberspace. And then as I thought about it, I was horrified. Because we were the only ones who could do that in 1998. But there was no reason to think that that would last very long. And there was no reason to think that Russia and China and other people couldn't also start doing interesting things in cyberspace. And I thought, we better start thinking about a defense program uh, as well as an offense program. So that first national security strategy around cyber warfare or cyber attacks uh, was, was the first foray into that. You also, uh, with your co-author on this book, did another book in 2010. What do you wish you had known then about the state we're living in today? Well, on the one hand, we got a lot right 10 years ago. Uh, and I'll tell you what we got right, then I'll tell you what we got wrong, because we got, <laughs> we got something very important wrong. 10 years ago, we said um, cyber activity, malicious activity will stop being teenage boys in their mother's basement on a Friday and Saturday night, uh, stealing credit cards and stealing money. It literally was, because you could watch it Friday nights and Saturday nights. The, the hacking would go up. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm sincere. I think it was, it was boys who couldn't... It's always boys always. who do the malicious stuff. Um, uh, boys who couldn't get dates. But in any event, um, we said it would move from that to militaries. Uh, and we said it will move from stealing credit card information to destroying things, physical things, in the real world. We said you'll be able to use a software command to cause things to blow up. Uh, and we said they will go after, the malicious actors will go after critical infrastructure like electric power grids. Now, all of that has happened, uh, regrettably. So we got all of that right. What we got wrong was we said back then uh, there are only two kinds of companies. 
those that have been hacked and know it, and those that have been hacked and don't know it. In other words, what we said was every company is going to be hacked or has been, and there's no way to stop it. That turned out to be wrong. It was right then. It's wrong now. Uh, The good news in this book, uh, and what our research turned up, is that you hear about Target uh, and Equifax and Marriott and Yahoo and all all the hacks that you pick up the Wall Street Journal on any day, and there's some big company that's been hacked or fined because they were hacked. And you think, everybody's hacked all the time. This is hopeless. You know, why even try? Well, we got a list together of companies that we thought were big targets, and we had never heard about them being hacked. And it was a relatively short list. Uh, And we worked our way into those companies, found people willing to talk to us, and they all said the same thing. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) We figured out how not to get hacked. And so we expanded the list. And what we found is that there's a formula that corporations are following, some of them. And that formula means that either you don't get hacked in the sense that the hackers cannot get on your network, or if they do get on your network, they can't do very much damage because you discover it right away and you contain them and you restore. And we call these companies the resilient companies. In, in, in the news business, you know, they're the dogs that don't bark. We don't like those. No. <laughs> you know, news story, nothing happened. Um, but it's, a, it's not a nothing happened story. It's a technology-improved story. The defensive technology... What Bill Clinton said to me in 1998 was you've got to get the defensive technology to catch up with the offensive technology. Well, it took a long time, and it took a lot of venture capital money from San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Uh, that's what did it. Uh, but there are now a series of products, no one product, but a series of products that if you put together in the right way, they're expensive. You have to spend money. But if you do that you can defend yourself at this moment in time. Now, technology is always changing, and so, you know, next year may be difficult or impossible, but right now, there are major corporations that are successfully defending uh, themselves in cyberspace. I cannot say that's true of the U.S. government, but it's true of a lot of corporations that are household names that I'm not supposed to say. And you're not supposed to say it because it, it aggravates the hacker community to want to target them to prove they can. So several years ago, um, Oracle put up a sign on the 101 that said, unhackable. <laughs> and I almost drove my car off the road laughing. Um, and, of course, you know the rest of the story. I don't have to tell you the rest of the story. But eventually, um, the famous CEO... Uh, allowed himself to be interviewed, and they said, well, was that, wasn't that a mistake, uh, calling yourself unhackable? He said, no, actually, it saved us a lot of money because we were hacked in so many ways, we learned all of the ways that people can hack. That is spinning a story. Yeah. So, so given that, what grade would you currently give U.S. corporations in terms of their security? So it depends on the company, but if you want to do it by, uh, by sector, um, the financial services sector 
Uh, who was it that said, I rob banks because that's where the money is? Uh, Somebody rich. Yeah. Um, the financial services sector, I would give uh, an A-. minus. Uh, let's go down to the other end of the spectrum, uh, health care. I'm not talking about healthcare insurance companies. I'm talking about hospitals. Um, F. Um, it's not entirely their fault. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> but the Food and Drug Administration, for a long time, uh, said, when you get a machine and you put it on your network, we certify it, never change it. Okay, so you go to a hospital and you look at what software are they running on that heart lung machine? Windows 98. <laughs> Why is that a problem? Microsoft doesn't support it anymore. And, oh, by the way, they issued 26 patches, I think, for Windows 98 mistakes, you know, f- fix these security flaws. None of them were applied to the heart-lung machine or the IV drip machine uh, because the FDA said you couldn't touch it. This year, uh, within the last 12 months, the FDA has changed and gone 180 degrees the other way and said, if you are putting a medical device on a network, it must be secure. Now, they haven't defined that, they don't have standards yet, but they're moving in the right direction. But right now, at this moment, uh, hospitals are probably F or D. And what grade would you give the U.S. government? F or D. Uh, There's no curve in this grading. No. Um, It depends. I think the Defense Department probably is a C+. But then there are 42, I think, federal departments and agencies. My favorite story of a little department you've never heard of Uh, the HR department of the federal government, the Office of Personnel Management. Now, I didn't know until, you'll find out when I learned this in the story, um, that when you get a top-secret clearance in in government, um, they do a proctological exam on you. Uh, They literally, you know, find your second-grade teacher uh, and and the girl who lived next door, uh, when you were in third grade. They talk to everybody. They look at all your credit card uh, records. They look at all your phone records. It takes a long time, and it takes a lot of money to get a top-secret code word clearance. Okay. All of that information is then put in a file and sent to an evaluator who says yes or no. All of those files are stored, or were stored, at the Office of Personnel Management. So anybody reading that file knows more about me than my mother did, more about me than I do. Um, those files are all now in China. Because the Chinese People's Liberation Army hacked the Office of Personnel Management. Who was the person who thought that the Office of Personnel Management could defend itself successfully against the People's Liberation Army of China? Right? When you put it that way, it's funny, right? It's not funny. Um, so in the book, we propose that all of these civilian agencies, we take the job away from them, which, frankly, they would be relieved, I think. Um, the, the woman who was running the Office of Personnel Management got fired. It wasn't really her fault, but someone has to take the fall. There has to be accountability. Um, 
take the job away from all of these federal departments, create one IT department uh, that is really good at cybersecurity, and have them offer IT services, including cybersecurity, as a utility to all the other departments. And you say, that's crazy, it would never work. It's working in New York State, in Virginia, uh, and other states. They've seen the logic of doing this. Washington hasn't. One of the conclusions you make in the book is that our next conventional war is likely to be spurred by a cyber attack. What are the scenarios under which you see that as a possibility? I think leaders make the mistake of thinking that cyber war is antiseptic, uh, not lethal, and therefore it's, it's, it's a safe way to make a statement. Uh, our current leader, um, a few weeks ago, was about to bomb Iran with bombers and missiles uh, because they had shot down an unmar- unmanned uh, reconnaissance vehicle, a drone. Uh, uh, but Tucker Carlson intervened. <laughs> true, true. Uh, and convinced the president not to bomb Iran. And so instead, he did a cyber attack. I tell this story because I think it's, it's typical of the way leaders think about cyber attack. I can do that. It'll be safe. It, nothing will happen. Nobody will die. Well, at some point, that won't be true. And for some Palestinians, that's already happened. Last month, um, the Hamas group of uh, Palestinians in Gaza, um, they're, they had a little cyber command, and they were attacking Israel on a regular basis. The Israelis are very good at defending, probably better than anybody. But they'd had it, you know, every day defending against cyber attacks from Hamas. So they launched an F-16 and dropped a bomb and blew it up, the Hamas cyber facility, um, killing everybody inside. Uh, I, that story for me is a metaphor uh, of how war in cyberspace can easily slip into in more conventional war where people die. The declaratory policy of the Pentagon is if the United States is hit with a cyber attack that is sufficiently damaging which they don't define. The United States government reserves the right to respond to a cyber attack, not just with a cyber retaliation, but with bombs and bullets. That's our policy. So I think when we say in the book, uh, it's easy to imagine a cyber war becoming a conventional war. That's why. There are a number of references in the book to um, attacks that specifically Russia started against the Ukraine that then reverberate out into global impacts. What is, I mean, we know Russia and North Korea and China have robust hacking systems. And Iran. And Iran. What does the United States' offensive hacking look like? Pretty damn good. Um, It was pretty damn good when no one else had any. It's still pretty damn good. But... um, We say in the book, imagine a situation where the Russians hack us and and destroy the power grid. Not just turn out the lights, but blow up transformers and generators that cannot be easily replaced. 
Let's imagine this happens in the winter. And you're sitting in New York or Washington with no electric power, and therefore no heat, no money from the ATM, no credit card machine operating. You're running out of food. And the president sends out the message somehow. Uh, I don't know how, because there's no electricity. But Newspapers. Newspapers. <laughs> Paper is distributed with a message from the president saying, I know it's, it's tough out there, but feel better. I've just done this to Russia, too. Well, what we say in the book is, yeah, okay, that's not going to make me any warmer. And besides, in Russia, at least, they have a lot of vodka. <laughs> so, yes, we're very good at the offense. But that's meaningless unless you can do defense. You know, think about your favorite football team, uh, the Santa Clara, what, what are they uh, called? Um, <laughs> that's rough. <laughs> <laughs> Think about your favorite football team and imagine they had the best offensive line uh, in the league. And the defensive line was the junior high school school down the street. The fact that you've got a really good offense is not going to win you the game if you're junior varsity uh, on the defense. And that's where we are. We have the best offensive line in the league. And we've got junior varsity as the defense. There's a law right now pending in Congress called the Active Cyber Defense Certainty Act, which is also colloquially, colloquially known as the Hackback Law. Mm. What are the implications of this legislation if it goes through? So uh, I get a lot of companies who get hacked call me and say, I know who did it. And I want to hack back, and, and I want to destroy their machines. Sometimes the companies actually do know who did it, and actually probably could hack back uh, and destroy their machines. This is vigilantism in cyberspace. Uh, and just as, for the very same reasons that we did away with vigilantism in, in virtual real space, uh, we can't have it in cyberspace. Uh, if only because the thing that you want to hack as, as a president of our corporation, the, the people you want to go after, people you want to destroy, there's probably a CIA bug on their computer. And we're probably learning a lot about what they're up to uh, by sitting on their computer. And if you fry their computer, we're going to lose all of that intelligence. And if you think I'm kidding, go to the Justice Department website. And they have these great wanted pictures. The wanted pictures have changed from you know, bank robbers. They're now named individuals who are officers in the People's Liberation Army. They are named individuals who are in the Russian GRU, military intelligence named individuals in the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps in the North Korean Army. And not only do we have their names on the Justice Department website, we have their pictures. And we, are, we have indictments on them, we have warrants out for their arrest globally for having hacked American companies. Now, I will leave it to your imagination, since I have to, 
about how we got their pictures <laughs> and their names. They have an Office of Personnel Administration, too. <laughs> you mentioned in the book that uh, California, for one thing, has been more aggressive in implementing reasonable security measures for utilities, for example, than some other states. Are we better off than the feds? So I think California um, doesn't suffer from the disease that Washington does. Washington has uh, a fear of regulation. Regulation phobia. Um, California regulates everything. Um, and, you know, for example, you know, the, the state legislature recently passed a bill uh, about the Internet of Things. Internet of Things is all of these devices from heart-lung machines to autonomous cars to your refrigerator, uh, all of these devices that are being hooked up to the Internet. Um, Someday someone will explain to me why the refrigerator needs to be hooked up to the Internet. But, <laughs> but there's a real danger because most of these devices do not have security built into them. And many of the devices, frankly, cannot have security built into them because they're, they're, they're somewhat old and primitive and, and don't have a lot of capacity on the chip. California passed a law saying no device should be hooked up to the Internet of things unless it can be secured, period. Now, there are two reactions to that outside of California. One is, oh, there they go again in California. Um, no specificity, no detail. How are you supposed to know what to do? The other reaction is, that's a really good start. Because instead of telling us what size screw to use and how many times to turn it to the right, this is regulation that sets a goal. The goal is secure devices before you put them on the Internet. And that will evolve. There'll be definitions. There'll be specificity over time. But the smart, modern way of doing regulation is saying, that's where I want you to go. Uh, and then after a few years, when people haven't done that, uh, then you come up with more detail, and you come up with fines, and you come up with inspections and audits. But I think California in general, uh, in cyberspace, uh, has had a very progressive attitude. California was the first legislature anywhere in the world uh, to pass a law that said, if you're a company and you've been hacked, and personal identifiable information, name, social security, number, credit card number, personally identifiable information was compromised, you have to tell people. That was a revolutionary idea. Lots of states have done it since, uh, but California started it. So in the book, you also say that it's just known that foreign governments are in our power grid right now. What is keeping them from shutting it down as we speak? So I don't say that. The, the director of national intelligence says it. Dan Coates uh, holds the job of director of national intelligence. He was a former senator from Indiana, Republican. Um, Dan Coates testified uh, to Congress in March. Every March, uh, there is something that only people like me and only people in Washington love, and it's called Threat Day. I know you've never heard of Threat Day. It's my favorite day. <laughs> threat Day 
the heads of all of the intelligence agencies and the FBI go before Congress in open session and say, these are the threats that face us. And they, they, they rank order them. And this year, Dan Coats, speaking on behalf of the 17 U.S. intelligence agencies, said the number one threat is cybersecurity. And as his examples he gave, Russia is in the controls of our power grid. China is in the controls of our natural gas pipeline networks. Well, why haven't they done anything? Russia also has nuclear weapons. They haven't used them on us. Uh, Nation states don't use weapons just because they got them. You know, uh, if you're of a certain age and you're a guy, you probably want to buy a red sports car. Uh, And as soon as you get it, you're going to take it out and make it go as fast as you can. Nation states can't do that. Nation states buy new weapons, but they don't go out and use them right away. Uh, They wait until there's a crisis, until there's a war, or they use them in a deterrent way by not using them. Think about any scenario now in the future where we might want to push Russia somewhere, push their troops out of Syria or do something. The advisor to the president is going to say, Mr. President, you could do that. But you have to know that Russia could retaliate. And that retaliation might not be limited to something in Syria. They might turn out the lights in San Francisco. So, in a way, they are using that weapon system every day by limiting what we can do to them. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. And what role do you think traditional diplomacy does or should play in that, particularly since we now have a president who has an unconventional approach to uh, foreign relations. You think? I'm being conservative. There was a senior position in the State Department um, to negotiate uh, on cybersecurity. Um, Secretary of State uh, Rex Tillerson uh, eliminated that position. There was a position that kind of was the evolution of my old job in the White House, um, quote, cyber czar, unquote, to shape our international policy and our, and our domestic policy on cybersecurity. Uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton eliminated that job. So there's not a lot of cybersecurity diplomacy going on. I think we need it. I think we need rules of the road. Uh, now, I'm old enough to re- have participated in nuclear arms control with the Soviet Union. Uh, and when we started that, everybody said, you'll never get there. Uh, the Russians can't be trusted. Uh, you can't verify this stuff. They'll never agree to reduce. They'll never agree to limit. 
And Ronald Reagan said, no, I think it's worth trying. Uh, and we got there. We got nuclear arms control. It was verifiable. We put limits on things. We created rules of the road, confidence-building measures, risk reduction measures. I think we can do that in cyberspace. Uh, but it will be a long process, just as nuclear arms control was. Um, but you have to start. And I would start not with Russia uh, or China or Iran or North Korea. I would start with our friends, if we have any left. Um, <laughs> I would start with like-minded nations uh, and get them together and agree on the rules of the road uh, and agree on procedures and agree on what we together collectively will do to scoff laws, uh, to cyber outlaws. You know, today, if we know that a company in San Francisco was hacked by a particular Russian, not, not even a government person, but a Russian criminal, we issue an arrest warrant, we serve it on the Russians in Moscow, they rip it up. They throw it in the wastebasket. Uh, if we do that in Japan, if we do it in Germany, they go arrest the, the people for us. Um, we need to get together with other like-minded nations and say to Russia and China and other people who are international outlaws, uh, if you're going to act that way, there will be consequences. And I'm not talking about hacking them. I'm talking about limiting their access to our cyberspace. It's a radical proposal in the book uh, that we somehow define a community of nations that respects law and respect each other, uh, and we allow those nations free access to the same Internet. But nations like Russia and China, if they don't play by the rules, their access to our Internet is controlled, rate-limited, and monitored. It's very hard to do technically, I know that, um, but I think it's worth, it's worth thinking about, and that's why there's a chapter in the book. But how is that possible when it seems that this administration is uh, absolutely fixated on denying that Russia in particular influenced the election and is a source of disinformation and hacking? Is, is there a future in which that sort of diplomacy is possible? In 2021. Well, that's an excellent segue <laughs> to the elections. What are the chances that the 2020 election is going to be hacked? 100%. And how do you think that's going to manifest? Well, I don't think it'll be exactly what happened in 2016, but it will resemble 2016. So let's, let's go through what happened in 2016. Uh, you all know it, but just to level set here. Uh, the Russians went on social media and pretended to be Americans. And they micro-targeted, because on Twitter and Facebook, you can micro-target geographically, ethnically, racially. They micro-targeted American voters. And for African-American voters, they sent the message that the Clintons don't like black people which, if you know the Clintons, could not be any more untrue. 
But they targeted this in a very persuasive way. They talked about the Clintons' role in Haiti, which actually was very good, but they made fake news about it. And they sent messages to specific African-American communities like South Philadelphia, West Philadelphia, saying, don't vote. Don't vote. Uh, The Clintons don't deserve black votes. In more progressive communities, like let's say the Philadelphia Main Line, more fancy places where people worry about climate change, they went after voters that they knew were concerned about climate change uh, and told them, Hillary's going to win, but you need to make a statement about climate change by voting for the Green Party. Now, if you take a look at Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, and you look at the Green Party vote, the difference between Hillary winning in those three states and losing was the Green Party vote. If you look at the number of African Americans who voted four years earlier, and then look at the number that voted in that campaign in 2016, there's a huge drop. They did voter suppression, they did voter transfer, uh, and they encouraged people on the other side to get out and vote. So when people say to me, oh, social media, how could you throw an election by playing around with Facebook? They did. 2016 was the first presidential election where the majority of voters got their news in large part from social media. So that's what they did in social media, but that's only part of what they did. The Russian intelligence services hacked into the campaign uh, of the Clintons. They hacked John Podesta, the campaign manager, took his emails, distorted them out of context, released them through WikiLeaks uh, in, in Julian Assange in London. We now know, much after the fact, that they hacked their way into the databases, the voter registration databases, of 39 states. Now, we don't know what they did when they got into the databases. The, the election commissioners in 39 states will say they did nothing. Well, the reason the election commissioners say they did nothing is the election commissioners had no way of knowing. They had no sophisticated tracking uh, cyber software to know what, even that they had been hacked. It's not that those 39 states knew they were hacked. The FBI knew they were hacked. It's very easy to say nothing happened on my network if you have no way of knowing what happens on your network. Why would they want to play around with voter registration? Let's imagine a very close election that can be swung by a couple of states, and you go into the precincts where your opponent is going to do well. And you mess around with the voter database so that names disappear. Those people show up to try to vote. They have to fill out forms. They have to complain. There's a hubbub. The line gets longer and longer and longer. Uh, And at some point, people look at the long line and turn around and go home. It's a method of voter suppression. Will they do all of that again? I think so. Uh, The House has passed a bill to give money to the 50 states and the 4,000 counties 
because the elections are really run by counties in most places, to buy cybersecurity equipment so that they can lock down their networks. States and the counties don't have the money for that. That bill is would pass the Senate if it came up for vote. Republicans, Marco Rubio, for example, has said, I'll vote for it. But Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, will not bring the, the bill up for a vote. Now, I've been asked on a couple of interviews on TV, why do you think that is? And so I've actually gone back and looked at what he says. What's his justification? He says, I don't want to have <coughs> our... <coughs> I don't want to have our elections become federal. Excuse me? They're federal elections. We're electing the president and the Congress and the Senate. Um, So that leads me to believe that maybe there's another reason why the Republican leader of the Senate doesn't want to have our states be able to stop the Russians from affecting our elections. Uh, let's let's go back to the valley. You, you mentioned VC money um, playing a huge role in the security systems. Uh, there are a few times in the book you also I, I would I would characterize it maybe as mocking um, some of the Silicon Valley uh, philosophies like Google's "Don't be evil" and even mocking some of the VCs who just want to have cybersecurity companies in their portfolio. To what role do you think Silicon Valley has in putting us in the state where we are today? One block down the Embarcadero uh, is a VC company called Allegis. And the guy who runs it is Bob Ackerman. I don't know. Is Bob here? I don't want to talk about him if he's here. (laughs) No, go ahead. Um, We interviewed Bob for the book, and Bob is one of 10 uh, people in venture capital uh, in this country who really understands cybersecurity technology. Uh, he, he's done it from the, from the beginning. And he's had great success with great companies. And what he said was, venture capital firms now want to have cybersecurity companies on their board of logos, on their investments. Because to attract investors, venture capital firms have to go out and raise money. To attract investors... They think they need to be able to say, and we have a cybersecurity company. Because a lot of cybersecurity companies have done well. Just last month, CrowdStrike, um, a cybersecurity company, had an IPO. And the first day was, uh, went from a $2 billion valuation to a $13 billion valuation. So understandably, venture capital firms think... They need to say, we have money invested in cybersecurity. What Bob Ackerman says in the book is most of them have no idea how to invest in cybersecurity. And so you know, any two Stanford graduates who can rub two sticks together uh, and say, we have an idea for a cybersecurity company, there's a venture capital firm somewhere that will give you money. So if any of you are bored... Um, and you want to start a cybersecurity company, just come up with some silly idea and go down to uh, Sand Hill Road uh, and you'll get a check. Um, and you'll, you'll be one of the 3,000 cybersecurity companies. Uh, 
what Bob says is, this is silly. Uh, and and it's, it, it's harmful because it draws talent uh, into all of these companies that we really need. We don't have this much talent uh, in cybersecurity. We really need to concentrate that talent in a handful uh, of companies that can really survive and create really good products. He calls it uh, spreading the peanut butter too thin. Uh, and I think he's right. Look, without venture capital firms, without San Francisco, without Palo Alto, uh, we would not have venture, we would not have cybersecurity companies. Um, that's, that's how they're created. And we have great cybersecurity companies like CrowdStrike uh, that are making it possible to defend successfully. Uh, so there's good news, but there's also bad news because there's a lot of silly money uh, going to silly companies. Uh, Google has recently been criticized by some in the government for um, capitulating to an increasingly activist workforce, uh, specifically with deciding not to bid on a $10 billion Pentagon data contract. How do you see this growing activism that's concentrated here in the Bay Area among this workforce that's difficult to attract? Yep. How does that play into our future ability to respond to these threats? So I was upset to learn um, that Google had a lot of employees say uh, to the people who run Google, uh, we don't want you to participate in artificial intelligence programs with the Department of Defense. And then Google opened an artificial intelligence laboratory in China. I think that's disturbing. Um, now, I understand that you don't want to perhaps get involved in weapon systems. Um, but when you're the leading company in the United States uh, in a technology like artificial intelligence, to deny it to the people who are defending our country, uh, when you know that, well, Vladimir Putin said, uh, the country that masters artificial intelligence will rule the world. Uh, it ain't going to be him, by the way. Um, it's going to be China. Uh, and we know China is, is developing artificial intelligence for weapon systems. If we don't have a capability to defend ourselves with artificial intelligence, uh, they will have a stronger military than we will. I don't think that's a particularly good idea, not just for the United States, but for the world. Uh, we've made a lot of mistakes as a country in Iraq and elsewhere. But we're also the country that until recently, um, has stood for human rights and stood for freedom uh, and supported democracies around the world and kept the peace. And I just want to, you know, the people at Google, the employees, to think about, you know, the freedom you enjoy <coughs> came because previous generations helped defend our country. And not just by going into combat, but, you know, by building things. Uh, when Pearl Harbor happened, um, my father got shipped off to the Pacific. And my mother went to a factory and made artillery. 
She was Rosie the Riveter. Today, you don't make artillery to defend our country. You make artificial intelligence. And if you're unwilling to do it, um, then I think we have a problem. You gave the federal government some pretty bad grades in terms of its uh, security preparedness. If they, uh, you, and, and we also know the president has criticized the FBI and some of the intelligence agencies, and some people have said that that makes it harder to recruit our bright young minds to do exactly the work that you line up. And if it's true that China is going to beat us to the machine learning AI race, how does that play out? Do we just, is there, is it only winner, winner takes all, the first one to the bag? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, the truth is, if, if Google won't work on artificial intelligence, Raytheon will, uh, or Lockheed will. Um, and the first country to get uh, an artificial intelligence program is not going to win uh, some war. Uh, it's a cumulative effect. Um, and it's not one weapon system. Uh, but the future is going to be dominated by robotics, uh, by machine learning, by quantum computing. Uh, and we need to be in that race, uh, not just to sell um, products, not just so that Amazon can get and ship you toothpaste faster, uh, but so that we can defend democracies around the world, so that our military uh, can remain strong. Uh, Donald Trump will not always be president. Uh, and the United States will come back and will fight for human rights and civil liberties around the world. And we need to be strong to do that. So you, you mentioned um, quantum computing, and also we're, we're on the verge of this 5G world. How does that complicate all of these issues even more? Well, so, great question. I said earlier we're at a moment where you can defend yourself if you're a corporation and you know how to do it and you spend the right amount of money. But that moment is fleeting because technology is always moving on. Uh, and when technology moves on, it opens up possibilities, both good and bad. Uh, so with quantum computing, um, and please don't ask me to explain quantum computing. <laughs> Um, I, I spent a but lot. Don't ask me to. <laughs> I, you know, I spent a lot of time writing that one chapter in the book on quantum computing. Uh, and I, I had to learn it well enough to explain it. And I had to explain it in terms that anybody reading the book, anybody reading the book could understand. That was the hardest job of writing I've ever done. Um, and I hope I succeeded. You be the judge. But um, quantum computing will allow us uh, soon, I think, to solve problems that today cannot be solved. Uh, there are some computational problems that no computer can solve. Uh, or it will take a long time. Uh, quantum computing could replace wet labs that generate drug trials. Uh, and and uh, you know all these great wet labs across the way here uh, in the biotech uh, heart of America, across the street. Uh, very expensive wet labs that take a long time to, to go through possible combina combinations and permutations. 
A quantum computer could do simulate all of that in a matter of minutes. A quantum computer could solve in a matter of seconds computational problems that supercomputers now take a week to do. So it will solve a lot of problems for us. Uh, it will advance uh, drugs. It will advance gene therapy. It will advance metallurgy. Uh, but it might also allow us to break encryption. And you say, well, who cares? Well, you use encryption every day. Your browser is encrypted. Your email is encrypted. The ATM is encrypted. Uh, encryption is necessary for our financial system. Uh, it's necessary for our diplomacy, for our military. Uh, and if somebody comes up with a quantum computer that can break encryption, uh, and there's no way to stop that, if there is no way to stop that, uh, then we're in trouble. So good news, bad news. Uh, people are now trying, in advance of there being a, a really working uh, quantum computer, uh, people are now already trying to come up with encryption codes that can't be broken. I hope they succeed. Uh, 5G is a similar story. 5G will enable us um, to have a million devices per square kilometer all getting 10 times the bandwidth that you can get today from 4G. I don't know if you know this when we moved from 3G to 4G. The only way I know this was my phone had a 4 next to it instead of 3. <laughs> You're going to notice when 5G hits. It's going to be 10 times faster and able to handle a million devices per square kilometer. So that'll enable, for among, uh, among other things, uh, driverless cars, which really probably can't work without 5G. Uh, but a lot of devices are going to be hooked up directly to the Internet, the Internet of Things, uh, and many of them, uh, like the hospital devices today, are not secured. Uh, so we've got to be very careful about not rushing things to market until we secure them. Not rushing things to be plugged in to the Internet or to a 5G system until they're secure. Well, I was surprised when you mentioned that you have one of those fancy cars that's hooked up to the Internet. Does that Obviously, you're not afraid of this future too much to have one. I have a Tesla. Um, actually, Tesla has probably done more work on securing their cyber uh, security in the car than anybody else. Um, they've hired really good hackers uh, and said, attack me. Uh, and they have. <laughs> they put a billboard on the 101. <laughs> uh, they, they pretty much. Um, and, uh, you know, people have been able to hack the Teslas. And every time they do, they get paid a, a reward uh, and Tesla fixes it. And if, if those of you who don't have Teslas, every once in a while your car says to you, I need to download some software. Uh, would, would midnight be a good time? Um, and you come out in the morning and it's fixed. Uh, and a lot of that uh, is fixing security flaws. 
So there's a there's a question in here that's kind of related to the encryption. Um, I think a lot of people in the audience can appreciate this questioner who's frustrated with all the usernames and passwords. And is there a future for a globally accepted digital identity that is safe? Yes. Oh, great news. Let us all get rid of passwords. Um, until we do... Um, Get a little application on your phone or your laptop called a password manager. You've got to pay 20 bucks or something for it. Uh, it will give you really hard to crack passwords, a different one for every thing you use, and it will fill the passwords in for you. So you don't have to remember the password. Password manager, buy one. Um, no, there's a chapter in the book about how we think we can get rid of passwords uh, and create a federated global identity system not run by a government, but enabled by the government. So the government would be the first mover to say, if you sign up with MasterCard or you sign up with Google to this new identity system uh, that doesn't use passwords, uh, we will allow you access to your social security records online, your veterans records online, your IRS records online. In other words, create a market. Um, and we've got some ideas in the book about how to do that. Uh, MasterCard is doing a lot of that. It's leading a federation that will do a lot of that. And there are ways, pretty good ways, actually, of identifying you online uh, without ever you're having to put in a password. Um, some of it's facial recognition, but it doesn't have to use facial recognition. Uh, there are a lot of problems with facial recognition, but when you use it on a phone... It never leaves the phone. So the, the ones and zeros that are your facial recognition uh, on the iPhone, for example, never go to Apple, never go to anybody. They stay on the phone. Um, that's a good idea. Uh, and there are lots of other ways of identifying you. Because passwords, not only are they a pain in the butt, uh, most of you are using one or two passwords on 20 or 30 different sites. That's dangerous. Don't do it. Well, you say it's something like more than 70% of attacks that come into corporate computer systems happen via email and phishing, phishing scams. I, I always wonder who these Nigerian princes are that people are still it's falling not, for. It's not Nigerian princes. So you could get an email tonight from dickclark at yahoo.com. And you say, oh, I talked to him after the, after the event, and uh, he gave me you know, his email, and then, uh, oh, he's sending me a nice note. I don't have a Yahoo account. <laughs> what they do is they get a friend. What spear phishing means, they're going after you. They know you. You're the treasurer of a company. Uh, they get someone in the company who you would know. They find somebody through LinkedIn or whatever, and they use their name, and instead of being at, you know, Mary Smith at Google.com, it's Mary Smith at AOL.com or something. They get that real email. Mary doesn't have an AOL account. So it looks like your friend. It looks like your coworker. Uh, it's very convincing. Uh, it's not the Nigerian princes anymore. I tell you, I come close every week 
I come close to clicking on something. I was going to ask you if you've ever been oh, I'm sure. successfully uh, Not that I know of. Um, <laughs> but you, you don't know sometimes. Um, anybody can fall for this stuff. Uh, so you have to be very, very careful. The best rule is never click on an attachment in an email. Never click on a link in an email unless you're absolutely 100% sure that it's the person that you know. And if you have any doubt in your mind, do something very old-fashioned. Call them. What other steps can people in this room take to help with this seemingly intractable problem of cybersecurity? Well, while it sounds awful and frightening, and it would be if if there were a cyber war, you'd all be affected. But day-to-day the risk of you being significantly hurt right now is not bad. It's not high. And, and let me just kind of try to prove that by asking everybody in the audience who has ever had their credit card number compromised to raise their hand. I think that's more than half the audience. Now, all of you who raised your hands, if you had to pay because somebody used that credit card after they compromised your number. They used your credit card to buy something, and you ended up having to pay for it. Raise your hand. Nobody. Nobody. Why? Because right now, the credit card companies and the banks are making so much money that they can afford to pay for the damages, and you don't have to. So while we all worry about our credit cards being compromised, and it's a pain to go through and change your numbers, and I understand it's inconvenient and it takes time. But so far, it doesn't cost you money. So the personal risks, there are risks, um, but most of us do not run personal risks uh, in cyberspace. So please do not take away from tonight's discussion uh, a fear of using cyberspace, of using the Internet. The Internet is wonderful. Uh, You can learn so much. You can get so much done. Uh, Explore it. Use it. uh, And don't worry too much about the cyber threat to you. Get the password manager. Change your passwords. Um, But don't worry. Don't be afraid. Uh, You might, if you get a chance to ask a congressman or a senator or a presidential candidate, and there are lots of them running around. (laughs) Um, You might ask them a question about cybersecurity, uh, because so far I've only heard one Democrat ever mention the words cybersecurity in all of the debates and activities so far. So uh, one of the ways that that uh, translates to corporations is they can get hacked and and people try to hold their information for ransom. Mm -hmm. What do you think about and often they're asking for payment in Bitcoin. What do you think about Bitcoin? You know, I, I've never understood the problem that Bitcoin was meant to solve. Um, unless it's money laundering. Because it's really helpful if you're trying to do money laundering. Um, but you, you, you mentioned what's called ransomware. Somebody hacks, a criminal hacks into a corporate network or a city government network or a hospital network. And they encrypt everything 
so that the users of the network, the owners of the network, can't get to their own data. And then they say to them, we'll give you the key to unlock it, um, but you have to pay us so many million dollars in Bitcoin. We don't talk a lot about this in the book because my co-author and I totally disagree um, about what we think. I'll tell you what I think. Um, Ransomware is like a Darwinian process. Um, uh, It is identifying for us the people who are bad uh, cybersecurity. It is infecting and destroying the networks that haven't done a good job of securing themselves. So it's a... It's, it's culling the herd, in a way. But when the herd is your hospital uh, or your city government, the city government of Atlanta got hit by this. The city government of Baltimore got hit by this. Um, you want to restore your network pretty quickly because citizens depend on services from their, from their city government. Uh, when hospitals get hit with it, you've got to restore the network pretty quickly because citizens... Uh, need health care. Um, so what I think is, yeah, you should really do a better job of cybersecurity so that this doesn't happen to you. But if it happens to you, the quickest and most effective way of solving it is to pay up. And I hate giving money to criminals. I really do. But I will tell you one thing about those criminals. If you pay them, they will 100% of the time they will unlock your network. Why? Because they have a reputation to maintain. (laughs) Think about it. If the word gets around that when you pay up, you actually don't get your network back, nobody will ever pay up again. So the record is, unfortunately, that if you pay up, you get your network back. And then you've learned your lesson. And then... Maybe you'll spend the money to secure your network. Honor among thieves. Well, unfortunately, we've reached the point in our program where there's time for one last question, which comes from the audience. And this questioner says, seeing what you have seen and knowing what you know, how do you get up in the morning and what gives you hope? (laughs) I will tell you, having worked in the government for 30 years and gotten... Hillary used to talk in the campaign about the 3 a.m. phone calls. I get a lot of 3 a.m. phone calls uh, when I worked in the government. I worried a lot every day about all sorts of threats that most people never heard of. Uh, And that was was the job. Uh, The job was to take care of the threats before people heard about them. And sometimes we did, and, and sometimes we didn't. But when I left government, I I had this feeling, a physical feeling, uh, of a a weight being lifted off my shoulders. Uh, And I've talked to others uh, who have had similar jobs, and they say the same thing. Um, You you always hear, like, oh, you're you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. You don't realize that until it comes off. (laughs) So I have no trouble sleeping at night because it's not my job anymore. to worry about it. And the phone never rings at three in the morning. Well, our thanks to Richard Clark, former U.S. National Coordinator for Security, Infrastructure Protection, and Counterterrorism, and co-author of the new book, The Fifth Domain, Defending Our Country, Our Companies, and Ourselves in the Age of Cyber Threats. 
We also thank our audiences here and on radio, television, and the internet. I'm Audrey Cooper, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thank you. That was great.